everyone. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors at CA Church. I pastor our town center campus. I want to thank you for joining me virtually today. We've been walking through the book, uh, often labeled The Revelation of John, but what is really, as Pastor David mentioned last week, uh, Revelation is an apocalypsis, an unveiling, a revealing of Jesus, by Jesus, about Jesus. It was written to Christ followers near the end of the first century. And although it it has often been a book that has caused confusion and fear about the future and has been horribly misused in that process, often causing many to stay far away from the book, as far away as they possibly can, the book was actually a letter to the early church was meant to bring comfort and strength to those who were frightened and who were unsure of what the future looked like. And the way that Jesus did this through this message to John to give to the churches was by saying to John, who was a prisoner for his faith and a pastor, to to write messages to seven different churches in Asia Minor or modern day Turkey uh, and, and to explain or reveal to them a deeper reality. If you want to look at those, those previous messages that we've had, you can check out the rest of the series on our CA Church YouTube channel. So far, we've looked at uh, the churches in Ephesus, the churches in Smyrna, last week in Pergamum, and today we look at the church in a town called Thyatira. Thyatira was actually the smallest, probably, of these churches, in the smallest town of its day, uh, of these seven churches that are mentioned in Revelation, but, but this is one of the longest letters. So to start with, I need to say that for many scholars, the letter to the church in Thyatira is, is actually one of the most difficult ones to interpret because we don't know a lot about ancient Thyatira, not as much as we do about some of the other cities that, that John writes to. But what we do know gives us enough to dig deep, not only into what this message from the cosmic Christ would have challenged the church to in its day, but also how you and I ought to take his message to heart today at CA Church in 2020 on the verge of 2021. Thyatira was a city full of craftsmen and guilds. In fact, some of you might remember that in the book of Acts 16, the book that tells the story of the early church, we we meet a lady named Lydia who was actually from Thyatira, was a seller known for selling purple cloth. Now, there, there were guilds in Thyatira for tanners, for weavers, for bakers. You name it, you wanted it. There was a business to provide it in the market. And if you wanted to join any of those businesses, you would have to join a guild. As a seller of purple cloth, Lydia would have been a part of one of the many guilds in the city. And this would have been a big issue for Lydia after she came to be a Christ follower if she ever did actually return to Thyatira. And here's why. To associate with a guild was to associate with the gods of Rome, to dedicate yourself and your business to the gods of Rome. In Thyatira, specifically to join with the guilds was to swear allegiance to the god Apollo and to eat food offered to him in worship. The food was offered to Apollo so that it was believed when you ate the food, you were sharing a meal with the god. Meetings for the guilds were, were often held in the temple to Apollo with, with food offered to him, with, with prayers of thanksgiving offered to him. And these festivities often ended in drunkenness and, and open sex parties. For, for Christians to take part in these festivities, to go along silently and step into business, and all that that included was to deny relationship with Jesus Christ. And the temptation was real. And many in the church were falling into this. Imagine you're a Christian in Thyatira. You're trying to feed your family. 
You, you're a gifted artisan. Your, your talents are needed in the community. You have the education. You have the skills to be very successful, to take care of your family. All you need to do is say a few words of allegiance to Apollo. Spend a little bit of time with those who live their lives in allegiance to him. Spend time in his temple. Give worship to him. After all, Apollo was the son of Zeus. Well, what might Jesus have to say to a church in this situation? What might he say to his church in 2020? To those of us who are Christ followers, who are gifted, who deserve a place in the market. But know that it would require giving some of our allegiance to the ideologies of our age that deny his reign and deny his influence. What are the dangers of this kind of drift? What, is it, what does it do to the heart of Jesus when we say yes to these kinds of things? I love this letter to Thyatira because I think in this letter we actually get a glimpse at the heart of Jesus when we are content to give bits of our allegiance, bits of our hearts to the gods of our day. So this is Jesus' words through the Apostle John to the church in Thyatira at the end, nearing the end of the first century. He says this in Revelation 2, 18 to 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your later works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works." And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have reached authority from my Father, have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, there is... So much in this text, so much to, to consume today. But the ongoing point Jesus makes is that he sees. <laughs> he is the God who is aware, the God to whom we answer. He is not to be used. He will not be fooled. And he will not be shared with other gods. He begins this message to the church in verse 18 by telling John to write that these are the words of the Son of God. It's interesting. I didn't know this until this week or, or studying this text. This is the only time that that phrase is used in all of Revelation. These are the words of the Son of God. It's not surprising speaking to a city that prides itself as the city ruled by Apollo, the son of Zeus, the highest of the Roman gods, that Jesus would say, I am the son of the most high God. And he says, with, an eye, with eyes like a flame of fire. 
that pierce and see everything with, with feet that will not be moved. I like what I'm seeing, he says. You have love and a faith and you're actively living out the gospel. You serve with endurance. And not only that, you're getting better at it. You, you're growing in an active faith. It says in verse 19, your latter works exceed the first. Way to go. He says, you're getting better and better. You are growing and you are maturing as a church. But, ah, and you knew this was coming as it comes in all of these, these messages to the churches. He says, this I have against you. He says, there's someone among you there's someone who's claiming to be speaking my words, a prophetess, claims to be a prophetess, but rather than calling you to deeper devotion and rather than inviting you to deny yourself and follow me, rather than saying you ought to live a life honoring to God, she's convincing some of you that you are free to live as you'd like. She's teaching you what Jesus calls the secret things of Satan. She's saying that you can live between two gods, that you can share allegiances, it's interesting that Jesus refers to this woman influencing the church as Jezebel in verse 20. Now, someone, when someone is labeled a Jezebel, we immediately get probably an uncomfortable feeling in our stomach. You may not even know why that is, but have you ever heard the name Jezebel associated with something good? I, I've never met anyone named Jezebel. <laughs> I, I, I checked my Facebook feed. I don't, I'm not associated with anyone named Jezebel. No one in Israel would have ever named their daughter Jezebel because, because Queen Jezebel to the people of Israel was a constant reminder of what can happen when we are led away from God by the enticements of the world. We read in the history of Israel in the Hebrew scriptures in 1 Kings chapter 16 that during the time of the kings of Israel, one king by the name of Ahab took a wife for himself who had no love for God. She did not follow Yahweh, did not care about Yahweh, and under her influence, worshipped the gods of Baal and Asherah. These were the two popular gods of the day that surrounded Israel and the nations that surrounded Israel. If you wanted to be like the nations around you, which Israel often found themselves doing, often admiring the ways of the, the nations around them, if you wanted to be like them, you worshipped Baal and Asherah. And, and Jezebel influenced Ahab, the king of God's chosen nation, to give up on Yahweh and encourage the worship of these non-gods. And so that there were no voices speaking for Yahweh, no prophets of Yahweh, she went out of her way to try to wipe out all the prophets of God and then set herself up as the priestess of these non-gods. And things, as you would expect, got ugly quickly. The worship that surrounded these non-gods included child sacrifice, orgies, and, and just base behavior that was glorified and fully engaged in by a nation who had once identified itself and dedicated itself to the one true living God. And it wasn't until God gave warning after warning to the children of Israel, asked that they repent without a response, that he finally sent a prophet whom Jezebel was unable to rub out, a prophet by the name of Elijah. And in 1 Kings 18, after warnings and calls for repentance, after stopping, or, 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 yeah, stopping rain, Elijah pulls all of Israel together on Mount Carmel. And in 1 Kings 18, 21, it says this, Elijah came near to all the people, and he said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? It's causing you difficulty in walking when you go between these two. If, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. 
And some of you'll recall that Elijah took on the prophets of Baal and called fire from heaven after a challenge, and things did not go well for these prophets. Things did not go well for Jezebel because she had pulled God's people away from him. So when Jesus refers to this woman in the church as Jezebel, he's most likely not using her actual name, but a name that expresses all that the name represents and brings to mind of this ancient woman. Jesus is saying to the church in Thyatira, why are you tolerating the kind of teaching that destroys communities and denies me? He says, she's seducing my my servants, my people, my church to practice sexual immorality. Now, there's a possibility that this was actual sexual behavior. As Pastor David mentioned last week, there was often a a connection of the worship of the Roman gods and and drunkenness and sexual activity in in the name of liberty and and life. But another possibility in in context of Jezebel and the draw of, of worship in Thyatira, it makes it likely Jesus is referring to a seduction to give hearts and minds over to other gods. He's equating idolatry with spiritual adultery. One of the main themes in scripture, and it's a heartbreaking theme, a major ongoing metaphor, is that our relationship to God is like a husband to a wife. A God with a hus- as a husband with compassion and a desire for his wife, who pursues and loves his wife, life with a wife with a deep, untamable love. And when that relationship is in danger or being held loosely, it breaks God's heart. The prophet Isaiah says, in Isaiah 54, five to six, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. Some of you know of the prophet Hosea. The prophet Hosea had the worst assignment of any prophet, in my opinion. He was told by God to to go and take a cheating woman to be his wife. One who continued to wander off to other lovers. And Hosea was told over and over by God, now go and get her, bring her home, forgive her, and welcome her back. All of this is a metaphor for the wandering hearts and devotion of God's people from the living God to the dead, voiceless gods and ideologies of the surrounding nations. In the New Testament... The church is referred to as the bride of Christ over and over. The Apostle Paul lamenting that the church in Corinth is is drifting from its devotion to to Jesus. And Paul feels like he he kind of introduced them to each other. In 2 Corinthians 11.2, it says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And in the book of Revelation, we'll see this as we move on, that the church is portrayed as a bride prepared for Christ. And the ending point of history is seen as a marriage ceremony between Jesus and his church. In Revelation 19, 7 to 8, it says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And in chapter 21, verse 1, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. There was no more chaos. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, coupled with this metaphor, this relationship, 
is always in the background this continued reference to God as a jealous God. Jealous for his people. Jealous for his bride. The most alarming of which we read in Exodus 20 verses 4 to 6 where God is is laying out what, what we've come to call the Ten Commandments. Speaking to the nation of Israel who, who God has just walked out of slavery, slaved, saved from slavery in Egypt. People who have just witnessed the power and the love and the devotion of Yahweh, the true God, over the false gods of Egypt, over Pharaoh and his false claims. God says these sobering words to the Israelites in Exodus 20 verses 4 and 6, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. That is heavy. And I know when when people hear in Scripture God speaking of his jealousy that some are ready to pounce. They've got a lot of problems with that. This kind of text makes us uncomfortable. How could a God visit iniquity so harshly? How could he be Jealous? How could he do such a? How could he do such a thing to to those he says he once loved, or to anybody to show this kind of jealousy? How does this match up with God's love and forgiveness? Is this is this even the same God? Well, I think there's a few things we need to notice when it comes to idolatry, about allowing our lives to be informed and formed by other pursuit pursuits outside of God. First, when it comes to idolatry, hearts that wander from, from God and, and, and replace with non-gods, there is always an invitation to repentance, always an invitation of open arms from our, from our God. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Even in Revelation 2, 21, Jesus says to Jezebel, I gave her time to repent, but she refused. This wasn't an issue of an error that she just needed to have some some correcting on her theology. This is a heart bent on leading people astray and rejecting God. The opportunity for repentance was ignored. Second, idolatry breeds a distaste in our hearts for God. The very fact that the generations are continuing to hate God, as it says in Exodus 20 verse 5, is a lack of repentance. And an ongoing denial of God. It's not simply that God has given them no choice, but that there has been a hatred bred that brings about the same destruction as the previous generations. They've become like their parents. They've become like for their fathers, like their, their culture in their hatred for God. Idolatry breeds distaste for the one true God. Thirdly, when it comes to responding to idolatry, God's love and compassion far outweighs his wrath far outweighs his wrath. When it comes to our cheating on God, he is always waiting with open arms, with an abundance of grace and forgiveness. In this text, in in Exodus 20, verses 4 to 6, it speaks of the consequences of idolatry for the third and fourth generations of those who reject and hate God. But notice that his steadfast love and blessings reach to the thousandth generation. 
There are consequences for wandering and rejecting God that will have their time, but God's love and compassion far outweighs his wrath. Consequences of sin are for a time, but God's love and compassion are for an eternity. Fourthly, when it comes to idolatry, I have to say God's jealousy is appropriate. There's often a, a misunderstanding when it comes to God's jealousy. In, in the story of our relationship with God, the, the church's relationship with Jesus, idolatry is considered, considered spiritual adultery. Many pointed to the jealousy of God as a reason to dismiss him as petty, as unworthy of our relationship. Oprah Winfrey famously said in a, a Q&A with a fan several years back, how could, she came to a point where she decided she couldn't worship this God. How could a God who, was, who had everything be jealous of little old me? She questioned. And I think many ask that question, but I think that that's a misunderstanding of God's righteous jealousy. It's to try to make his jealousy petty and paranoid like ours might be. But God's jealousy is an informed jealousy, passionately in love with his people. I tell you, if someone seduced, someone seduced my wife or someone led my children down a dangerous path, drew them into a dangerous life with dangerous consequences, to not be jealous, to not have my heart torn is to be uncaring and unloving. But if my heart is consumed in love for my wife and my children, my jealousy will be strong and unbearably painful. That's the heart of God. That's the heart of Christ when we share our heart with darkness, when we, we test drive the world's temptations. I tell you, I, I want a God that loves me with that kind of passion. See, the same kind of love that dies for the church is the same kind of love that is jealous for the church. And it is exactly because he seeks life for his people that he is angered by those who would try to lead his people away to the worship of dead things that offer life but deliver death. And for that reason, Jesus says, I won't take it anymore. This person, like Jezebel, like the, the Jezebel bell of old, is, is leading my church that I died for, my bride, towards death. And so... I've given her the opportunity to repent, and she has refused, it says in verse 21. Now, I don't know how she was given an opportunity. Maybe it was through local leaders. Maybe another letter from John or another uh, leader in the early church. Maybe John had visited her before and challenged her on this, but there, there has been no repentance, even though she's been given opportunity. In verse 21, it says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Like the prophets of Baal, like, like Jezebel, who, who drew God's people away from her, away from him, excuse me, her time is up. And those who follow her are going to face consequences. Rather than a bed of seduction, she will find herself in a sickbed, it says. But even in this, there's still opportunity for repentance, it says in verse 22. They can still repent of their works, Jesus says. Her children, most likely those who've followed her lies rather than actual children, will be no more. This death probably has more to do with consequences of following this Jezebel in her lies. The end of verse 23, Jesus tells us he will give each of them according to their works. And, and this is the, the crux of the message to the church in Thyatira. Those who follow the gods of their age will come and go. If you follow the gods of the age who come and go, you will have an inheritance that comes and is gone the next day. 
Baal and Asherah are gone. So are those who followed them. Apollo, the emperors, the empires that they commanded will all come and go and have come and gone. The ideologies that promise so much will come and go. And so there's no inheritance in them. Why? Because they are based on the secret things of Satan, it says in verse 24. A promise of some hidden truth, which is really a lie. That, that's the way Satan has always operated. A promised inheritance of the world that turns to dust. But Jesus says, that's not the inheritance I offer. Stick with me, Jesus says over and over in these letters to the church. Stick with me over this, the seduction of other promises. Do not limp between two paths, he says, just like Elijah. Stick with me. Hold fast until I come. Conquer. Be resilient. Keep my word. And one day you will rule with me, it says in verse 27. Literally, that word is shepherd. You will shepherd them with a rod of iron. It will be a great reversal. Those on the bottom will end up on the top. Right now, it seems like the world has the power, that, that the empire is eternal. But stick with me, Jesus says. Be faithful to the end, and I will give you the morning star. This is a, a beautiful concept. I will give you the morning star. I had the honor of visiting author and pastor, Professor Daryl Johnson one day a few years back. I was going through some, some difficult stuff in my own life, running low on energy, uh, spiritually, emotionally. And I was looking for some wisdom from Daryl, and he graciously gave me uh, some of his time one afternoon. And after I'd sh shared kind of where I was at, he, he pointed me to this text, which he had actually written about in his book on, the, on, on Revelation. And he said, I love the story of the morning star and what it means for Christians who are struggling. See, Jesus refers to himself as the morning star later on in Revelation twenty-two twenty-six. But he explained to me, the morning star appears at the darkest time of night. It shows up when darkness is at its darkest, where fear and anxiety grow. When, when you see it, there's no hint in the sky that dawn is on its way. But when that star appears, it's a message that the dawn, that light, that a new day is on the way. One theologian says it this way. He says, the morning star pulls the morning behind it just as certainly as Jesus pulls the kingdom in behind him. Jesus says to the church, I am the light to let you know that the kingdom is coming. All other lights will fade, regardless of how bright they might seem. I remember the first time I ever saw fireflies. I was sitting on a back porch in, in Illinois in the middle of summer, and I saw this fluorescent green glow. And at first I thought it was a, a kind of a trick of the eye. I got up, I, I started kind of walking out into the field. But if you've ever been near fireflies, you know that they kind of light for a little while, a few seconds. And then once you've walked towards a firefly, it stops glowing and you just end up seeing nothing and having, <laughs> you've gained nothing. You find another one, you follow it until it fades out as well. One after another, one pursuit after another. That's the kind of light we are encouraged to spend our time on in this world. That's the kind of light that the world offers. It is bright for a while. It takes up our time for a while, but it leaves us in the dark until something else grabs our attention. Not so the morning star. Not so the bright light that we celebrate at this time of the year. COVID seems like a dark time, it's caused fear, it's caused anxiety, but it's not the last story. And our present situation is framed by the arrival of Jesus, the Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, the morning star, the great unfailing light announced by angels 
2,000 years ago, signified by the star of Bethlehem, which will come again as sure as the morning star brings in the dawn. I tell you, it's, it's ironic that a season so full of light and color could actually be a deterrent from true light. The sun of righteousness, as the song says, the morning star. In the midst of it all, Jesus cries out in, in his great passion for the church, do not waste time on the pursuit of fireflies, devotion to empires and, and non-gods and ideologies glowing for a while and then fading, but fix your eyes on the morning star bringing light and life to all. Church, I love you and I miss you. May the light of Christ shine in, in your homes this week and in your hearts and in your minds. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you and may he give you peace. I love you, church. Can't wait to see you again. <music>